Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Good morning, everybody. This is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. This is Iron Radio. We are recording separately this week and getting you out one early. So, I went on the social medias and put up a few questions again. We're going to hit up some of those. Last time I think I did a training update and a couple questions. This time it'll just be questions. So, um, got some good ones here. So, Mr. Thayer wrote, What are the benefits and drawbacks to training with and without a training partner? That's a tough one. Um, I've said it before. I'll say it again. A good training partner or training partners in general can be the best thing that happened to you. Or the worst thing that happened to you. It depends on the training partners. So there could be benefits or drawbacks to both. So um, with a good training partner or training partners, um, you tend to just push each other and rise each other up. Um, So a good training partner, you you both will rise to a level that you wouldn't be at uh, by yourself. Like my current training partner, training partners, um, we push each other in a very positive way. You know, if if I'm having a day where I kind of feel lackluster and feel like shit, um, generally he doesn't. And what happens is that pushes me up. It's like, okay, well, I got to be on my fucking game because he's going to do it anyways. And I'm going to look like an asshole uh, if I don't do it. So, I mean, it tends to, it tends to change the way I train. Um it's like I don't have time to have an off day because he's not having an off day. It's very rare that we're both like, oh, fuck, we feel like shit uh, the same day. So and it's just I'm that type of person, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to let him just smoke my ass. So I bring myself up. It's like, OK, time to get on your game. Let's do this. Um, and, you know, we have little it's it's fun little competitions with each other. You know, I know where I'm at, like I'm, I'm markedly stronger than he is. He's a lot newer than I am, but I know where our training numbers marks should lie. So it's like, okay, he hit that. That means I need to hit this type of thing. Or he did this many reps. I need to do that many reps. Like right now we're, we're consistently doing this AMRAP thing where we do all our heavy training and then we do an AMRAP based on percentages after. And we swap weeks of, you know, one week I go first, next week he goes first, because whoever's second is at an advantage. You know, let's say he goes first and hits 15, then I have a number in my head. I go, okay, I know I need to do 16. 
Um, it's harder when you go first because you just have to hope that you do enough to win, if if you will. There's no, I mean, there's no real winning, but it's winning. Um, so, I mean, that type of thing, it can it can do great. Now, if you have a poisonous training partner, uh, the same thing, a, a, a partner can just bring you down. And I've had them before, too, and you just got to fire them. Uh, you have that person that's just a fucking energy vampire. And, you know, they just suck the life out of you. So, I mean, that can be where it's bad. Or you have somebody that's always late or just, you know, pain in the ass training partner. So, uh, both can be good. Both can be bad. Um, you know, some, if you have that spot, then it's better to train alone for years and years and years. I trained alone and I did well. The thing with training alone is you have to be good at just pushing yourself. So, um, that's the tough part about that. And, you know, a good, I would say the best training alone will never match the best training with training partners. It just doesn't. Um, the atmosphere, the camaraderie, the drive you get from being with others that are like-minded um, can bring you to a different level. It just does. You know, you feed off each other. Um, you know, we've got it down to where I know, like when I train alone by myself at times now, which happens every once in a while, it's like, hey, man, I got this, this, this coming up. So I'm I'm stuck alone. Even my rest between sets, it's like, I don't know what the fuck to do. Cause normally I just rest long enough to load the bar for them. And then we go, you know, it's my turn. So we have a pace that I'm used to. So even now when I'm training alone, I mean, even that screwed up. I was like, how long do I rest? So, um, but that's kind of the, the short and sweet of that. Aaron George, <sighs> he says smoke and squat. A contest to see who can do the most reps of 225 in the squat over a 12-hour pork butt smoke session. Oh, God, Aaron. Uh, inherently, that sounds good. The problem I see with it is I've given myself rhabdo once in my life. Uh, and that was squatting 225. This was before my hip replacement. I went in and I was just having a bad squat day. Everything kind of hurt. So I set up a box. And I decided for an hour and a half, I'm just going to squat 225. So I'd do 225 to the box. And let's say one set I did tempo squats, or like a four, one, four. And the next set, I would see how fast I could do the weight. Next set, I'd do this. Next set, I'd do that. And I, you know, I probably had two, three minutes rest for an hour and a half. And the next day and the day following that, on and on, uh, like I couldn't walk downstairs. I had to leave my house and walk the driveway and go downstairs. I was pissing Coca-Cola. Um, I jacked myself up pretty bad, um, you know, to the point of I didn't quite have to go to the hospital, but it was close. So uh, it sounds amazing, but 12 hours, man. Oh God, we'd have to, uh, we'd have to like set a timer and like do a set every half an hour or some shit because the potential for us to kill ourselves is, uh, is very high, especially if we add in alcohol in that 12 hour smoke session. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, at the very least, at least we'd have some good protein to eat after we were done. But, uh, yeah, that'd be a rough one. Jen Bates. This one I'm not going to answer because it's too hard. Um, I'd have to sit down and, uh, go through this. This is the something that me and her have talked about, but she wants a 
10-step checklist of non-negotiables you need to walk through every time you start thinking about going on gear. Only when you say yes to each line item. Only when you say yes to each line item can you talk with someone about starting. That's tough. I mean, yeah, I like the idea. It's something that, you know, we need to get down. I mean, a lot of them are easy to pick. Like, I think it was Wendler that said, you know, one of the things is make sure that you know the minute you start, you're a criminal. Because um, you just are. Uh, I think another one to add in there is just there's probably a 90% chance to know that you're a lifer. Like, uh, you're not going to stop. So, things like that. And then, of course, there's all kinds of other stuff, side effects, things like that, that we'd have to step into. And that's probably the bigger one. Um, somebody knowledgeable. I mean, that's the, the biggest problem I see is that uh, people go to somebody that doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about to get advice. And then they end up screwed up, and now it's too late, especially your females, things like that. So, I don't know. Let's sit down and get a uh, a true 10-step checklist because what we'd probably end up doing is writing like 20 down and then having to revise that and scratch off the ones that don't that don't uh, need to be on there and things like that. So, Okay, sorry about that, guys. My son had to come in and ask a question. Um, <clears throat> C.S. Peterson, what changed in your training... From volume, exercise selection, and frequency once you transition from raw to equipped. Currently beginning my equipped journey and interested to see what you are doing differently. Oh, not a lot. I mean, honestly, my training hasn't changed much at all. The biggest training change that I had was uh, coming back. So I had my hip replacement, I had my hamstring repaired, and the biggest change in my training was figure out how to train after that. Now that took a little while to figure out, and um, since then, not much has changed. I mean, the only thing that changed is, like, I needed to learn my suit, and then I got screwed, and, you know, I bought a suit, and uh, I was getting ready for meat. And then the suit I had was no longer, in quotation marks, approved gear. So I'm like five weeks out from a meet, and all of a sudden my suit is no longer approved. So I had to find another suit. I didn't have time to get one made and or adjusted, so I just bought a suit. So I had to get used to that. Um, but other than that, I mean, not not much has changed. I mean, I, right, right now I'm getting ready to be in a meet phase but ever since my last meet i've been out of my suit i haven't trained in it at all i always train in a pair of briefs um i have for since before my hip replacement even when i lifted raw i trained in briefs the last 11 12 years and uh i'd see good carryover from that basically i i don't get more out of my briefs it's just a pair of power pants so super entry level um, briefs to put some, uh, just compression on my hips and things like that. It seems to help a lot. Um, but I never saw more out of my briefs than I did just the meat atmosphere and competition wraps. So I, whatever I hit in my briefs, I always hit that or more in the competition. 
it didn't adjust my numbers at all. So, and I would only take those off maybe once before the meet just to feel it. <clears throat> um, but I knew meet day it's there. So, um, you know, my training volume hasn't changed much. I don't do as much once I'm in the suit. So I'll go into the suit, uh, probably around August, we will likely stop our high rep AMRAP sets we're doing just because that'll fucking hurt in a suit. Um, so I, I rarely go above three reps, sometimes not over five in the suit. Um, and I'll do all that training. Like right now, like I said, I'm just training raw and I will for, I have been since March or whatever it was. So March, uh, March, April, May, June, July, August. So I'll be six months out of, out of my suit, just in briefs. And then I'll put the suit on three months out, get used to that, which I'm currently buying a new one. Um, cause my last one, it was very, uh, it was my first step into equipped lifting and it was a very entry level suit. So it's like now, okay, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to get a better suit. And if I'm going to be single ply, I might as well wear what everybody else is wearing. Um, so other than that, not much has changed. Uh, exercise selection hasn't really changed. Um, and the frequency hasn't changed due to equipped lifting. The frequency very much changed due to my hip replacement and uh, hamstring repair, which I've talked about before on the show. Basically, I figured out that um, I do all my heavy squatting and all my heavy pulling on one day. So there's just pretty much one day in my in my squat suit, and, and uh, I guess you could call it a deadlift suit, but it's pretty much a thick singlet. And uh, so I get all that done on one day, and then... Uh, I have another day where I just kind of do stuff. Uh, I'll do stiff legged deadlifts and this and that, but pretty much, I mean, like our, our typical heavy day will be our squat followed by an AMRAP or squat followed by heavy deadlift and AMRAP and deadlift. And then we're pretty much cooked. I mean, that's two and a half hours of hard, heavy training with maybe a five minute break at max between squat and deadlift. Um, so we go hard, we go heavy, and then that's it. And then it's recover, uh, for the week. And I think that has a lot to do, that has less to do with, uh, the equipment than it does with, uh, age, miles, and injuries. <coughs> oh, sorry about that. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, long story short, not much has changed. Um, the shirt is much harder for me to learn than the, uh, suit, like so much so that I just benched raw at the last meet. I just wasn't. I wasn't getting out of my suit, out of my shirt, what I, what I needed. And I got a bum shoulder, so I'm not sure I ever will. Um, but, uh, you know, I got more out of a slingshot than I did out of my shirt. Um, so, and they, they, they just hurt. But I mean, like I said, it wasn't helping. My bench sucks because of my shoulder from about halfway up. The, the lockout sucks is where it hurts. So I wasn't really getting any help out of the shirt that I hoped I would because um, the shirts mainly help you in the bottom. And that's where I don't hurt anyways. When my shoulder is going to kill me, it's from halfway up to lockout. So uh, basically it almost just exasperated the problem because now I'm able to load more and move it halfway up, no problem. But uh, 
and then my shoulder just still hurts. So I'm trying to trying to do things that I know have worked in the past to fix that and just not be stupid, but not a lot of change. So, um, James wants to know how about some broad concepts for recovering from minor injury, strains, bruised ribs, stuff you might train through, stuff you might need to rest more. How much should one rely on ibuprofen and ice? Obviously, there would be the need to be a consult. Consult a physician caveat. Um, some broad concepts on recovering from minor injuries. I can tell you this. Let's start with this. I have never met a high-caliber athlete that is healthy. They, they don't exist. Um... So if you're a hard training, fairly high caliber athlete, let's say, you know, advanced to elite, you are always dealing with something and you are always training through something. So the concept of just feeling good doesn't exist. Um, most athletes are always in pain. Especially in season time. Like when I'm right before meet, I just, you know, you're beat up. Now you try and, you know, limit that as much as you can. But you're always dealing with strange bruised ribs and stuff that might need to rest from. Um, the fact is you just can't rest. So you deal with them. Um, how much should you rely on ibuprofen and ice? I try not to. I mean, ice, yeah, that's fine. Ice some things, this and that. I try not to mess with ibuprofen except for prior to training days. Um to help me train and keep the inflammation down and make sure the training session is good. Outside of that, I don't take it. Uh, I want my body to recover. I don't mind feeling the aches and pains and things like that. And it also tells me, hey, don't do that. So I don't want to dumb that down. I don't want to dull that down and let myself hurt myself more. So I just deal with it and let that happen. Um, I think ice and hot contrast cold showers things like that any of that stuff can help walking is a big one i think not enough people do that and that can help injuries big time it's just get out and be active not train get out and move um the best thing i can do the day after a hard training session is just go out and do yard work crap like that or go out and go on a hike uh, if you move around you're going to be in a better position sooner uh you just get a lot of blood flow and things like that the worst thing i can do is just sit on the couch all day and then the day after that, I feel really bad. So, um, yeah, you're always going to be dealing with something. And it's just measuring, getting an internal dialogue with yourself to where it's like, okay, we can work through this or do I need to work around it? Like one thing, one time I, shortly before a meet, I uh, tore an intercostal in my ribs. That hurt like a son of a bitch. And what I had to do is like, basically it hurt most on deadlift. So I could still squat. I just had to squat belt free. So I figured out how to train to have like a zero or a very low pain and kept training going until that thing was healed. You want, you don't want to exasperate the problem. If something just hurts, you got to stop and find a workaround, but there's always something you can do. Same thing as when I like, I jacked up a hamstring prior to me, prior to the first time I pulled 700 and, uh, what I figured out is I could sumo deadlift and I hadn't been a sumo deadlifter before that, but I could do that. So I trained the last few weeks doing that and I still hit my first 700. Oddly enough, I'm a conventional puller, but my first ever 700 pull was done sumo. And that's because I just could not 
uh, deadlift out of pain conventional before that meet. So I made the switch. I could squat, I could sumo pull. So that's how we went that meet. Um, you can always find a workaround, find a workaround that doesn't hurt. Sometimes that might, like I'm pressing, there's days I just can't do it or weeks I just can't do it. So I'll do rows and things like that, but it's better off for me to not even train it than it is to train it and hurt more. Um, I know I'll just exasperate the problem I have with my shoulder. So um, it's fine and things like that. You know, you find workarounds, um, do all you can, get as much sleep as you can. Um, if the ice and showers and hot baths and rolling works for you, go get a, you know, soft tissue massage. I'll go get work done. If I'm really in pain, I am, I'm not a big foam roller advocate and things like that. I will go to a professional and let them do their job. So get ART done or dry needling or things like that. I want to get the issue taken care of and done instead of spending half of my time rolling around on a foam roller or a ball and not get much done. Um, I just don't. I know a lot of people use them. A lot of people have faith in them. I just have never got much out of them except for a waste of time. So I would rather just pay somebody that knows what the hell they're doing as far as recovery and fixing me to do that. And it wastes less time and time is money. So I'd rather pay the little bit of money to get it done right and be done with it than waste hours of my time rolling around like a dead fish on a foam roller or this and that. So um, I hope that helps your question. Nate, how do you program recovery methods? For example, I've heard Mike talk about how you can overdo multiple recovery methods. I have a foam roller, Graston tools, impact gun, 10 unit bands. How would I program recovery or am I just overthinking this? Um, in my mind, you're overthinking it. <laughs> uh, I have all those things. I don't rarely use them i think if you just get into a simple program of like i know when there's always been a proponent of like the agile eight and things like that something that takes you 10 to 15 minutes max um is what i would lean towards um i'm not a big fan of just hours of foam rolling or using tools on yourself or impacts guns or tens units um I think a lot of people just waste time and money on those. Uh, I think if you get yourself into like a 10 to 15 minute program to help mobility and things like that, um, you're going to do a lot. And then if you actually have a problem, like I said in the last question, uh, go get help. You know, there are people that are qualified and know how to do this thing. And generally, in my opinion, those professionals can get a lot more done than you can with the shotgun approach. Um, they they know what the hell they're doing. They they can dig in there better than you can. They can get to the root of the problem and help you fix it. Whereas you're just, generally I just find it a waste of time. I think most of the people that do all this stuff, I see people spend hours and hours and hours on this stuff. And generally from what I've seen, the people doing the most foam rolling grasp tools, impact gun, 10 units, bands, and self-massage and things like that are generally the ones that are not the strongest. They spend uh, most of their time doing that stuff and less of their time just hard training. So uh, I think, you know, that's where I'd go. And I think, like, again, I, on the last thing, being active, just generally active and not pushing yourself active. 
Like, get to a place in your life where not everything is a competition, which I have a problem with, too. Like, I'd go on a walk, and I'd be like, I'm going to see how far I can go in this amount of time. I'd time it and things like that. Get Just do it. Just go relax and go on a walk. Go outside, play with your kids. Move around. I think that's one of the best things you can do for recovery methods is just be generally low-impact active as a strength athlete. And that's going to help you a ton. Um, where are we at here? We are at 23 minutes. Let's see if we got one more that I can pick up. Mike T. Nelson came on here and said we got some good ones. Um, Mark Oxer, I'll touch on this. I'm not sure. I have not seen what he's talking about. But there's been a lot of hype around knees over toes training, training lately. Maybe talk about that. Uh, I haven't seen the hype, so I'm going to guess what you're talking about. I'm guessing that, like, for a long time, there was a push against knees going over your toes. Um, and now maybe there's a lot of people talking about how we need to spend time with our knees over our toes. Would be my guess, is what Mark's saying. What I'm going to get at is... Depends. You know, it depends on the sport, depends on the athlete, depends on how healthy their knees are, depends on how they're built. Um, there are some people that are just built to train and their knees go out over their toes. Or like if you're an Olympic weightlifter and you want to do it well, you're going to squat to the point that your knees are over your toes. Now, I think uh, knees over toes, like in the literal sense your knees need to track the same direction as your toes that's the one thing i try and push with all my athletes i don't want the knees inside of the toes i don't want the knees outside of the toes i want the knees tracking in the same spot as your toes now depending on the person and their leverages uh and their sport you know their knees may travel past their toes um in powerlifting i'd say it is uh not generally advantageous because the further our lower leg shifts away from parallel the lower the knee goes which means the lower your hips have to go in order to stay within the confines of the rules in the confines of the rules in powerlifting your hip crease needs to cross the top of the knee so the more your knee travels forward the less parallel that knee that lower leg gets the lower your ass now has to go to stay within the confines of a legal squat. So our goal is generally to keep the lower leg as perpendicular to the floor as possible um, in relation to that lifter and how they're built. Uh, most raw lifters will have some travel forward on their knees and uh, it just happens. Like your equipped lifters, they will be super wide push the legs out knees will our lower leg will barely if at all pass parallel or perpendicular to the floor and they're able to get their hip crease lower but they have the support of a multiply suit and briefs and everything else so um yeah i don't think it's a bad thing i mean knees tracking over toes just doesn't scare me do i think it's for everybody do i think everybody needs to be doing it no um like I I don't do it, but I'm old as shit and I'm beat up. I've got a bad hip. I've got a knee that 
literally the doctor told me 10 years ago, yeah, we can't clean that up. Just keep going till it blows up. So, uh, there's no cleaning to that. So he's like, just go till it explodes and then we'll put a whole new one in there. So, um, so I don't do it a lot. It hurts, but, uh, for a healthy athlete, especially somebody that has short levers, um, they're built to do that. I mean, so I don't, I don't stress it a lot. I have different lifters that lift different ways and we lift for their body type and they're for their sport and we make them strong in the positions they need to be strong in. Um, I don't try and stress like, oh, we need to do knees over training for everybody. No, I mean, we do this on a person by person, sport by sport basis, how they're built, how what they're training for. Um, if their sport demands them to be in that position, then yes, we're going to spend time training, getting strong in that position and making sure their knees are strong and limiting stress on them and things like that. But, uh, that's about it. Thanks a lot, guys. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. I Am Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. Over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, in about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. fix of iron radio in addition to being a popular institute on itunes we are also on email simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email you'll get a once per week email no more that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio so go for it <laughs> Hey there, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here. 
and wanted to answer a question that came in actually on the Iron Radio Listeners Forum here. Uh, this is from Nathan Had. He had a question uh, for myself. <clears throat> Phil might answer this one too. How do you program recovery methods? For example, I've heard Mike talk about how you can overdo multiple recovery methods. I have a foam roller, Graston tools, impact gun, TENS unit, and bands. How would I program recovery or am I overthinking this? So my thought is I look at, I primarily use heart rate variability and that allows me to move items into things that are more parasympathetic or more sympathetic. So parasympathetic is the branch of the autonomic nervous system that is the rest and digest branch. The sympathetic side is more the stress side of the autonomic nervous system, uh, fight, flight, freeze, etc. all of the Fs. Now, most of the time when we think of recovery, generally we're thinking about parasympathetic items. And that's good because training, for the most part, is a sympathetic response. If you've ever been too high in parasympathetic tone, your performance in the gym can be pretty lackluster or feel hard. Um, for people I'm programming, for example, if they have a powerlifting meet or a CrossFit competition or just most competitions in general, especially with gross motor skills involved, I actually want them to be more on the sympathetic side the day of the competition. Otherwise, it is very hard to get a high level of performance. So you don't really want to be too sympathetic. You actually don't want to be too parasympathetic. Again, heart rate variability is a method that you can actually measure the status of the autonomic nervous system to determine how much parasympathetic versus sympathetic you are. Uh, there's different ways of doing that. You can use the aura ring, uh, which I have and I like. For HRV, that will generally get you into the ballpark. Um, however, if you have a very low resting heart rate, HRV may not move around all that much on aura because it is collected during the night and it is an aggregate from your sleep. When you're laying down, you have a high amount of parasympathetic tone. Again, if you have a very low resting heart rate, so you're hitting the high 30s or even low 40s, for resting heart rate at night on, say, the aura ring, most likely your parasympathetic tone is going to be very high. And what I've seen on those individuals is that their HRV doesn't move around a whole lot, meaning they could brutalize themselves in the gym the day before. Their HRV doesn't move all that much, and that's because they have something called parasympathetic saturation. The parasympathetic tone is so high and they're doing lying down, that the HRV just doesn't move a whole lot. Imagine that you're seeing uh, on the beach and that you have this baseline level of just all these really high waves coming by all the time. You're not really going to see much else. So for that, 
And for most people, if they're using it to guide training and they want to do this on kind of a day-by-day basis, I still recommend a one-off reading first thing in the morning. Uh, right now, I primarily use the iFleet app. So instead of athlete, it's iFleet with an I. And most people will do that seated first thing in the morning. So get up, use the bathroom, do whatever you need to do. Sit down, put on the heart rate strap, or they have a finger sensor. I generally use a heart rate strap because I can use it for heart rate during exercise also. And then rest for about eh, one, maybe two minutes, and then do the measurement. Measurement will take about 55 seconds. So you're looking at a total time of like three to five minutes, which I think is a, a pretty good investment for what you get. And from that, you will get resting heart rate. And on the iFleet scale, they measure it from a one to 100 scale. So they actually take uh, what's technically called a time domain measurement in milliseconds, and they translate it to a 1 to 100 scale. On Aura, you're actually looking at uh, the time domain measure in milliseconds. So you can't necessarily compare the Aura score per se to the iFleet score unless you know the algorithm to convert them. If you get really stuck on that, email me. I actually know what it is. Um, So they are a little bit different. So once you have, let's say you're doing the iFleet measurement and you're tracking that over time, so you're doing it most days, you'll now know your daily measurement of heart rate variability. So that's the amount that you are parasympathetic versus sympathetic. And you'll also know resting heart rate. And you know about where your seven-day average is at. This then gives you a good metric for both where you're at and a way to measure if your recovery methods are helping. So the big key with recovery methods is you don't want to do anything to kind of mess up the stimulation that you did in the gym. Now, granted, most things aren't really going to mess that up too bad at all. Uh, Some things, maybe, uh, NSAIDs, maybe. Um, There's some interesting stuff with potentially very high amounts of vitamin C directly after training. Again, most of that was in uh, mouse studies. Uh, maybe antioxidants, although again, most of that was on vitamin C and vitamin E. You're not worried about eating fruits and vegetables or anything like that. Uh, cold water immersion, if done immediately after training for hypertrophy and you are in bel- temperature below 50 degrees Fahrenheit for 10 to 15 minutes, um, could uh, potentially interfere with hypertrophy. Uh, We've got some pretty solid data that says that it does, but again, how much in terms of uh, muscle mass or lean body mass does that cost you if you did that exact protocol? It's kind of unknown. Uh, The Flex Diet Cert, I went through and reviewed a bunch of studies on that, and there was only one study that used DEXA at a whole body level, and it was pretty hard to pull out from that Uh, what was really the effect. Uh, The other ones used uh, cross-sectional area, usually from uh, biopsy. So hard to say what that really means in the real world. And again, that was only if you're doing relatively cold water, relatively long period of time, and done immediately after training. Uh, We don't really think that that will interfere if you do it in the morning or even a couple hours later. Uh, But again, those studies haven't really been done yet. So by using heart rate variability, 
you can then determine, are you a little bit high on the parasympathetic side? Are you a little bit higher, more stressed on the sympathetic side? Uh, from there, you can then theorize what your interventions would be. Uh, so I originally heard about this uh, around the same time I was kind of thinking about this uh, from Joel Jamison. Uh, so shout out to him. He's been talking about this for quite a while. And from the sympathetic side, if you are more stressed, things that help increase parasympathetic tone are going to be beneficial. Uh, more sleep is always helpful. More calories helps. I find more micronutrition helps. Uh, that helps just those help across the board in general. And then longer exhale uh, breathing work. If you can get outside uh, to look farther away in kind of more of a panoramic view. Uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman talks about this. That is going to be a little bit more parasympathetic. Having a slightly longer exhale compared to inhale is going to be a little bit more on the parasympathetic side. Uh, you had mentioned you have uh, kind of the impact gun. I find that can be helpful. Um, I find doing some type of movement right after it is most helpful. Uh, so I'll do some work on that, and then I'll go for maybe a nice evening walk. So that is much more on the parasympathetic side. And in general, blood flow tends to help either sympathetic or parasympathetic. You could do some light work with bands. Uh, I don't have too much experience with a TENS unit, to be honest. I think it may be helpful, but you'd have to play around with it. Um, I'm a little bigger fan of uh, microcurrent, uh, whether that's uh, Dolphin or something like a Healy device. Those are kind of my go-tos right now. If you are more on the parasympathetic side, uh, which most people won't see as often but can happen, uh, up until probably five or seven years ago, I didn't really think that was a thing. My thought process was always, oh, training is a stressor. You're going to be more sympathetic. Just do things to help with rest and recovery. Your recovery things should all be parasympathetic. But then I found that some people the next day, especially if you do a lot of higher intensity, using my air quotes here, kind of lactate-based work, that high-intensity interval training, if you're really going hard for intervals of, say, 30 to 90 seconds, uh, like strongman medleys, things of that, I find that the next day you can actually be a little bit too high on the parasympathetic side. Um, and I've been able to recreate this myself and several clients over the years. Now, of course, rest can help with that. But if you want to kickstart that process a little bit, you'd want to do something that is more sympathetic stressor, but we don't want to brutalize you too much. We don't want a lot of eccentric load or even a lot of volume. So I got this from my buddy, Coach Cal Dietz. I like doing a trap bar deadlift and put the trap bar underneath the pins in like a power rack that's bolted down. And you'll set it up so you're about two to three inches from lockout. So you have the trap bar unloaded and it is underneath the pins. So you're going to pull up slowly until it hits the pins. Ideally, your position is going to be about two to three inches from lockout. And you're going to pull as hard as you can against the pins for around six to eight seconds. So what you're doing is a very high output sympathetic uh, stimulation. Uh, but there isn't really any eccentric. There really isn't any uh, load on it. So you're not going to further impair your recovery by doing a lot more uh, work. So things like that could help. I mean, in theory, if you're really 
good at it and your tissue is experienced, a few light bounds, plyometrics might be helpful. Um, things that are a little bit on uh, the short-term sympathetic side. You can play around with cold water immersion if you have access to that. Um, I have a converted freezer in my garage that I've uh, caulked the, <laughs> the inside, which works well. If you use cold water immersion, what I've done for trying to be a little bit more sympathetic is I would have it be as cold as possible, and then I would do the time in it to be very short. Again, if you've got access to very cold water, a shower, uh, if you can safely get it out of a running stream, something like that, what you want is the cold water to hit your skin and then not much after that. So if you've ever jumped into really cold water, uh, you know that that is a massive sympathetic stimulation, right? When the water hits your skin, especially your face, you've kind of gasped for air, kind of takes your breath away. Uh, unfortunately, some people have uh, drowned in this manner uh, because they are not used to it. And they go in, they have kind of a gas reflex, and their head is down in the water, and they can inhale water and drown that way. So again, be very careful if you're doing this in an open body of water. Um, so that is using the sympathetic side of cold water immersion. You're primarily trying to light up the sympathetic uh, nerve endings on the skin and then have not much of a cooling or change or blood flow redistribution after that. For more of a parasympathetic, ideally if you're using cold water immersion, I would do a little bit warmer-ish temperature and by warmer, usually upper 40s, somewhere in there. And then I would go in a little bit longer. Again, this all depends upon uh, your safety and what you are accustomed to. Uh, for myself, since I'm getting back into cold water immersion after traveling, if I want more of a parasympathetic, I'm going to get in. Uh, right now, my temp is at 47 degrees. And I'll stay in for about two to four minutes. And I'll just breathe really easy through my nose. So I'm trying to control a little bit of that sympathetic stressor. I'm going to stay in long enough to try to get a redistribution of blood flow. So you know you probably hit it right. You'll want to get out before it gets difficult. It should still feel pretty easy. You don't want any aftershock or anything like that. And if you don't dry off right away for like about a minute or two, if you see your skin turn a little bit red, then you probably are around the right spot. So what that is is a redistribution of blood flow. Again, walking can also help with that. So that would be my thoughts. Uh, just some simple things you can do. Uh, I like using, as I mentioned, HRV to determine, at least from a nervous system standpoint, am I more on the parasympathetic side or am I more on the sympathetic side? Or maybe I'm just doing good and I don't need to worry too much about it. Again, it always depends on what phase of your training uh, you are in. You don't want to do things to screw up the adaptation. Again, the adaptations to training are relatively robust, uh, but if you are approaching a higher level or more of, uh, elite levels and using different types of recovery methods, it does become a little bit more important to make sure that those are matched up appropriately. And when you have your HRV, you can determine are you looking to do more of a para sympathetic intervention for recovery, or are you going to do more of a sympathetic intervention for recovery? Uh, so there you go. Thank you so much for the question and take care.
Hey everyone, I just wanted to chime in here and say thank you uh, to Phil and Mike for covering this week. I am on a train hurtling across the Midwest and into the West. Um, after 12 years of editing the show, um, I just appreciate these guys were able to do that. I try to always be a part of the show, but of course it's not about me. So I have edited this together, as you can tell. And obviously this is early, but this will be the week's episode. We don't miss weeks. So thank you again, letting me do a little bit of recovery, like Mike was just talking about. Uh, and we'll be back next week with uh, our usual content. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.